Welcome, everybody, to the Feeling Bookish podcast. I'm Rob Fay. I'm here in Beaverton, Oregon. Don't forget the home of Nike, very important distinction. And I'm also with uh, Roman Sivkin, who is still on the left coast. He's in Ventura, California, north of L.A. And we're joined, uh, as always, of course, by Heston Hoffman uh, in East Portland, taking duties as sound engineer today. So uh, it's a beautiful fall day here in Oregon, which is a, it's a nice thing. I can definitely feel the, the weather starting to, to turn here, but today it's a brilliant, crisp fall day, which is kind of nice. So I appreciate that. Um, and I, I wanted to point out to folks who, who listen regularly that we have started a new uh, sub-series of podcasts called the Audio Essay Edition. So these are, um, you know, I think we, we hope that there will be a, a variety of different, maybe sound experiments with these, but uh, a bit different from our usual conversations between Roman and I and Heston or occasionally guests. So uh, we have done a few essays. Um, check those out. One on the writer-diplomat tradition and the other uh, kind of looks into uh, the Czech uh, playwright and former president of the Czech Republic, Václav Havel, and, and his actions during the Soviet invasion in 1968. Um, so kind of look for that. Um, but I today, love the way you, you – sorry, sorry, Robert. Just love the way you combine the political and the literary. That's just uh, – you seem to have angled that pretty well. You really know how to approach that now. It's wonderful. I love those essays. Yeah, well, thank you. Yeah, no, it's it's. I guess I mean that's actually a really good segue into to my latest obsession, which is, I I mean I think at the the bottom of it is sort of like we're obsessed with literature in the best sense of it, and you know I I often am wondering you know what is the connection between life and literature, and and I I feel like like if you could boil down, you know, a life's work or, or a life's intellectual work into, into something, I'm, I'm beginning to think that's it. And of course, you know, politics is a significant part of, not a significant part of life, or I should say a piece of life. Feels like it's everything these days. Yeah, it's, it feels all, all too significant now. Yeah. Um, but so that is a piece of it. And so I like to try to dig away at that question that I have. And, and I don't, you know, I don't really know what the answer is because, you know, I also think that literature is, is made of other literature. So there's, I think there is, you know, there's a clear, um, you know, dividing line or a firewall in a sense, maybe between the two, but I, I'm just fascinated at the connection and the, you know, that, where is that line? What does that line mean? Mm. Um, and so it, that that obsession has led me, you know, recently into really digging into a writer who I think is largely either A, hated, B, forgotten, or probably number three, which is just simply like, who gives a crap? And that's the, the French novelist uh, Louis Ferdinand Céline, who, um, you know, came to fame in the late 30s in France and then internationally with um, his novel Voyage to the End of the Night, which in France just blew the doors off what people were thinking about French literature. Um, you know, for those who haven't read it, um, it was written in a kind of, you know, French argot, a kind of jargon. It was the voice of the narrator is really what it's all about. 
and it it just explodes off the page. And I've always been puzzled by him and challenged by him because, you know, he is the archetypal bad novelist person. And I'm talking about his character. Bad boy of literature. I mean, uh, the the beats were, I, I think the beats were uh, play children when it can, they, they were, mm. you know, they were humanists and they were optimistic and, and uh, inclusive. And, and a lot of the things we value today where, you know, uh, Celine was a, an out and out anti-Semite who, who wrote a series of, you know, awful anti-Semite, I guess we'd call them tracks or they were called tracks at the times, but, you know, I guess today they'd be like a series of anti-Semitic tweets or something. Mm. Um, and he was also, uh, you know, he had been in World War One, and he was uh, deeply affected by that experience. And, um, you know, he, he had received a head wound in World War One, so some people speculated that his bad temper, his his cynicism, some of his unusual behavior throughout his life, maybe even some of his views were affected by, he had headaches ringing in the ear his entire life, and they did not treat those things mm. um, at the time. So I, I, you know, I don't want to spend an hour talking about my obsession because I, I do, I do want to write about this and I want to understand because I, I guess what, what I have found, and this is, I've, I've, I've read Celine in the past, but never in a comprehensive way. So I'm, I'm reading a biography now, which I, I recommend to folks who are interested. It's by the French writer Frédéric Vito, and that's V-I-T-O-U-X, and it's Celine, a biography. And so it's kind of the definitive biography uh, of him. And I'm going to work through his three, you know, principal novels, which is, you know, Journey to the End of the Night, and then Death on the Installment Plan. Uh, more a credit in, in French, and then also uh, Gisnol's Bond, Gisnol's Band, uh, which is his probably third most um, important book. Rob, so, I haven't I haven't heard about this 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 third book. I've obviously know about the first two. Yeah, so was this it a was later thing. Yeah, it was written later later in his life, um, and it is you know like his first two books is sort of. Um, uh, you know, based on experiences in his life. In this case, um, it follows like vagabonds and, and criminals in London, right? Because he he had spent some time uh, in the UK. He spoke What's the English. title again? Jeez uh, Knowles Bond, Jeez Knowles Band. I can... Um, okay, okay, okay. I got you. Because the first two titles are so descriptive. I mean, you know, Journey to the End of Night, what a title. That's just, uh, the, uh, I, in French, it sounds wonderful. And the same thing with Death on the Installment Plan. It sounds better in French. Um, yeah. So the, um, it's so descriptive. G I love it. Yeah, Gisnol's band, the spelling is G-U-I-G-N-O-L. So if we were to pronounce it phonetically as an English right. way, we'd say like Gignol's band right, or something right, right, like right. that. I see, I see. Mm -hmm. um, and I think band refers to the band of thieves. So... So, you know, I'm, I'm working through this and trying to collect my thoughts, but, but here's, here's basically my attraction. And, and this is something I want to explore. And I think, um, you know, I'll have more thoughts on this later, but I have found that his work is so exciting and it is so, it, it looks at the suffering of life face to face. So he, in addition to being a, a war veteran and scarred by that, he was also a physician, you know, so fascinating man. And he, his 
favorite part about being a physician was actually treating. He had a a clinic for a while, very unsuccessful clinic. He he couldn't make any money, so he had to do some 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 shifts, some rounds at local hospitals. But he he really liked being a um, kind of the neighborhood doctor in a, in a rough neighborhood because he was really interested in meeting prostitutes, vagabonds, mm. drunks. And so, um, you know, they would they would stumble into his office and, and, you know, he would do his best to treat them. And the, 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 the interesting thing about him, despite his dishonorable character, was he, he by all accounts, was a, a, a very good physician and, and actually very interested in, in healing people. Um, there seems to be no doubt about that. So, so there's a, you know, there another are, yeah, lots, of, lots of contradictions in this personality. Yeah. And so there, you know, there's the attraction. Um, mm -hmm. So, so I find myself in a time when, when many of us are suffering in 2020, I find his depictions of, of the hard knocks of life, to put it, you know, simply is almost not a comfort in some cheap Pollyanna-ish way, but there's almost an exhilaration in, in portraying, acknowledging, looking head on at the dark corners of life. And I, and I, I feel a boost, you know, I mean, mm. uh, you, you'd, you'd think in 2020 with everything going on, you wouldn't go to the bookstore and pick out, you know, death on the installment plan. <laughs> um, but but I I better to prove on the spot <laughs> exactly. Um, but I want to I just want to read this one thing that uh, I I felt I was you know on the path or or on the trail of something good, and then I saw this quote um, by a French critic at the time, and it kind of confirmed that I was on a similar path that other people have felt with Celine. And so here's a an interesting quote, and this is actually a preface to. Uh, Mora Credit, Death on the Installment Plan. And uh, let me find the passage. So here it is. So the preface to this book, it says, in an article on Journey to the End of the Night, right, his first novel, this is his second, Celine's first novel, a French critic, Robert Faurisson, puts forward a humanistic definition of great literature. And again, you also know I'm obsessed with, you know, definitions of, of what is mm -hmm. literature. Um, quote, it should appeal not only to man's heart, intelligence, love of truth, but to the whole man. However pessimistic, it should help him to acquire an acceptance of life. I love this. And then he goes on, a work excellent in other respects, but inculcating a disgust with life is not great literature. So I, I love that. And, and so an acceptance of life as it is in its totality, right? Mm. Um, and and I almost I feel like there's something there's something in that 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 can be helpful to me as a human being, particularly now in 2020, where I think you could argue that um, not argue, but I think it's very clear that a lot of the suffering and death in the United States with the virus is due to this distorted sense of optimism, you know, from the president. I mean, that's a generous way of saying it. I mean, he's a mm. He's a, um, uh, you know, he's a thug, he's a gang leader, and, and he's a, um, a sociopath in a certain way. But he understood, right, as, as manipulative sociopaths do, he understood a certain 
consciousness about, you know, his subjects. And he knew that optimism, a kind of, you know, macho optimism can work in the United States. But yeah, it's um, a display optimism. Totally. It's a and, it's a it's a surface surface coating absolutely. of something very bitter underneath. <laughs> absolutely. So, you know, I'm 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 kind of giving away my, you know, this this is sort of how I start to put away articles. You know, this is like I'm giving you a mental outline of, of what I'm trying <laughs> to chase here. Mm. Uh, you know, um, so that's kind of w- where the fascination is. Um, but I also feel a little bit of self-consciousness about spending this much time on a writer who um, I think I think would personify in our current age a person who needs to be canceled. Um, mm. I mean, not even canceled, but but if it's possible to like you know resurrect a corpse and and bring it into a courtroom and chastise it and sentence it to death or something. Um, but but this this is where you know he was received as great literature, and the French have continually kept him. I mean, the French consider him one of the great novelists of the twentieth century. The asterisk, of course, is they're well aware of who they're dealing with. Now, he he had to flee France um, uh, after World War II because of his anti-Semitism and also his he was sympathetic towards the Nazis. So so he fled to Denmark and, and lived there for a number of years in exile. So he was, you know, hated, mm-hmm. uh, sent out of his country. Um and in, in to kind of update the story, the, so the French remain, you know, rather ambivalent and, and they're not sure what to do with this guy. All the French being the French will not deny the greatness of his art. But Gallimard, the, you know, the great uh, Parisian French publishing house, they made a decision a couple of years ago that they wanted to publish his anti-Semitic tracts, which had been out of out of print for decades. Nobody had really seen them for a long time. So their argument was, let's, let's bring them back into the public sphere. Let's, you know, we are the kind of publishing house that does this right. We will have introductions and prefaces and notes, and we will, we will frame this piece of political racism for what it is. But their argument was, we also, you know, for academics and for people studying literature, French literature, we, we needed to see these things so that we can understand the full picture of Celine. Mm. Full so, disclosure. Full disclosure, because right. the other argument, which was very compelling, is so these these tracks will go out of copyright in 10 years. So anyone, including, you know, proud boy Nazis in France or whoever they are, could publish these without any context and say, you know, this great writer, you know, believed the views that we have, but ultimately because of the political environment we are in the West, th- those, those tracks were, uh, that, that easily dis- canceled. Yeah. Yeah. So, so well, Gallimard backed away. They, they are like, we're not going to publish them. And so I, you know, it's a reasonable decision to not publish those. It's a hot potato. Yeah, it is a hot potato. Um, so, you know, I guess in some ways I'm taking on the hot potato. Um, and uh, I, I feel like his work is important, vital, and I think, particularly in a time when the world is going through a kind of collective suffering, um, there's something there. And so I want to sort of drag that out. So, so that's well, kind of where I am with Celine. 
I, I, I love that, Rob. That's great. That, I do remember reading Celine uh, years ago, uh, both of those books, not the third one, and just being so impressed with the energy and that 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 no surrender type of attitude, uh, you know, of just getting to the bone of things without without flinching. Now, yeah. I don't remember any overt anti-Semitism in the novels. No, it's not really in the novels, although I think there's he wrote. He wrote probably, I think, I'm going to say seven or eight novels, many of them which are very minor or insignificant. And I think some of those later minor works, uh, you know, played around with more of that. So mm -hmm. I think it was mostly in his, um, his um, you know, political tracks and nonfiction. And, and um, to, to kind of, in a wonderful little, like, uh, in the weeds French literary story, I saw an interview with uh, Michel Houellebecq, right? The, mm -hmm. the, mm -hmm. the contemporary bad boy of French literature. Right. right. And so he was being interviewed in, in France by a French journalist. And so they were, it was a marvelous conversation. And so he asked him about his influences, you know, and he said, um, what about Celine? You know, were you influenced by Celine? People assume that you were. And he said, well, I, I read um, uh, Voyage to the End of the Night. You know, it was a good novel. But he said, quite honestly, he said, he goes, I think Celine's writing is his best writing is in his political tracks, in his anti-Semitic tracks. So that, that was quite a dig. And then he said, you know, he said, give me Proust any day uh, over Celine. Well, and so, yeah, yeah, but it but it but it, it seems like, you know, almost like in terms of outlook and bad boy behavior ish that uh, someone like Welbeck would embrace Celine and say, he's my, you know, he's my grandfather. Well, he he's doesn't my... want any competition. That's yeah. <laughs> so he's too close, too close for comfort. He's both French and historically not too far removed. So you're probably, yeah, right. I think Welbeck probably wants, wants to be unique. Uh, but you know, look, there's no, no uniqueness here. We have people like Pound, Elliot, uh, Hampson, major, major writers with some screws loose about certain things, uh, you know, but I think, you know, they're human, right? We we often elevate writers to some sort of godlike status. Um, but you take a physician writer, for instance, and you have uh, such a variety, right? You have the Russians, the Bulgakov and Chekhov, and then you, for, I don't know, uh, William Carlos Williams, okay? Yeah, uh, totally. A wonderful American writer, a dedicated physician all of his life. He would write little notes and poems in between uh, patient visits, uh, yet a very different approach. I mean, the, you, you describe Celine as a very caring doctor, maybe not a caring doctor, but somebody who was really dedicated. He was a dedicated. professional. He was a, yeah. he was a dedicated physician. He wanted to heal people, right? Um, well, so so was WCW, well, and Carlos Williams, yet they have a very different, uh, shall we say, uh, psyche or, a, a, you know, some sort of a profile of a psyche where Williams is this paternalistic, very sort of honest, hardworking physician, uh, kind of a father figure, but very kind and good. And then you take Celine, who is probably wouldn't be described that way, right? By, by friends and readers and whatnot, uh, but maybe by some patients. Um, so again, different approach. Both were writers, both were physicians. Uh, but a different, you know, different sort of imprint on the world. 
Yeah. Um, and and I know that people have explored, you know, kind of like, you know, bad men who wrote great literature. And, and you know, your list, you mentioned a great list. You could add V.S. Nepal, okay. uh, Bukowski. Long list. <laughs> Bukowski. And you, know who and you know who joined it recently? Um, we can also add, you know, bad men and bad women. Um, Flannery O'Connor. You know, there was oh. some letters that just uh, recently came out. And um, oh, great. Oh, what happened? Well, I mean, it isn't shocking. We're talking about a, a woman who lived in Georgia in the 50s. And so there were some letters where she was she spent time in New York and she wrote letters home to uh, her her friends in Georgia and, you know, essentially was complaining about having to sit near you oh, know, the black the blacks on the, on right, the subway. Right, right. And, um, Damn it. you know, and so um, I mean, I, I always feel disappointed when someone I admire you know, that that sort of comes out. I, I don't cancel artists. Um, there's so few real true artists that I keep them close. And Flannery O'Connor is one of them. But, you know, I mean, who who's shocked by that? Can you, you know, I mean, it doesn't excuse it by saying because there were people in 1950 in Georgia who were white and despised that, right? There have been uh, you know, white Americans throughout right. the history I mean, push I think, back I on think, that. I think our, uh, my question is when, when we talk about this is like, were these, was the worm in the apple in the soul or was it on the surface because of the times? But, or, you know, and this is something yeah. I, uh, Robert, this is something I kind of struggle with. You know, you, you started this podcast with, with your, your own sort of literary slash life, uh, you know, trying to make these connections. And I also struggle with, 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 Two basic approaches, uh, philosophical approaches, not just to literature, but really to life, since, you know, we kind of made the space wide open for that kind of discussion. Um, and that is uh, this this weird dichotomy that I have in my head between essentialism and 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 sort of um, this kind of weird relativism where there's nothing solid to stand on. You have to keep hopping. Uh, but at the same time, is there something essential? So to bring it back to our discussion, you know, is there, is this something that just happens to be because of their context of their historical location, these writers, the way they were influenced, uh, the way they grew up, the way that what, whatever. And, and so this, these, these things that we now look at as negative, like anti-Semitism, which, you know, obviously was viewed negatively at the time, but not by everyone. Again, I guess it's the same again today. I know exactly. Right. Oh, damn it. Um, know. but you know, so, so I'm wondering whether these writers have this essential is if the full, if the flaw is essential or accidental, and I know it's probably a moot point I don't think we'll ever be able to answer it, but I keep yawing back in all of my sort of philosophical thinking between essentialism and this relativism, uh, and I'm not sure maybe, maybe the secret is of balance is to keep yawing in some sort of a, you know, balanced way or if one should win over the other. Um, but here's, you have like, for instance, um, my recent attempt at reading The Tunnel by William Gass, which is almost a reverse of what we're talking about. I have no doubt that Bill William Gass, the person, the writer, was a a solid, erstwhile solid man, as, as The Wake tells, you know, talks about, uh, here comes everybody, um, the main protagonist, which is you and me and William Gass. Uh, but, you know, then he writes this book where the protagonist, who is supposedly very similar to William Gass, is at the core, or or is he, uh, rotten, you know? Uh, and so 
I'm I'm finding a very interesting way of navigating between these two uh, two poles of essentialism and relativism, and I'm not quite sure exactly because I think I gravitate towards one and then and then I get too close to the sun, so to speak, and I'm like, oh, I'm gonna get burnt, and I go to the other one, and then it's like too loose and too cold. It's like it's like the how do you how would you like the universe to end, Rob? Would you like it to end by heat death or by freezing? <laughs> so I either get too burned by the essentialism, like, oh, or I get too frozen and cold by this this relativistic approach where like anything goes. And and so just just for my own clarity, and, and maybe some people are thinking that too. So when you're speaking of relativism, are you speaking of relativism the way perhaps a religious person might, where like they're criticizing you know, like a kind of moral relativism, where if you're, you know, right. for example, if you're not a Christian and you don't have some kind of moral center, i.e. the well, commandments or Jesus, then, right. you then the Bible it, for the moral center, because where else will you find it? It's not out right. there. And, 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 and there's the the Dostoevsky quote, right? Dostoevsky had his, his Christian phase um, in the second half of his life. And he said something like, what, what was the quote? Without God, all is permitted, right? Oh, well, speaking um, so, of anti-Semites, let's add one, one more, a big yeah. one right there, right? Mr. D, oh, right. <laughs> yes, and again, you you know, going back to O'Connor, I mean, I mean, how novel is, you know, anti-Semitism in Russia in the late 19th century? I mean, it's, right. it's, I mean, it's it, pretty much it would be a, a career advancing. Uh, it's like character. fluoride. It's in the water supply. <laughs> yes, yes. Everybody was drinking it. Yes. Um, yeah. But no, good point. And, but so, so just to go back to essentialism and relativism. So, so you're saying where, you know, books that don't presume to have any take on the world, you know, have their place. But sometimes you struggle with that. Is that a, a way of putting that? I, I, maybe I can rephrase it in terms of the writers as opposed to the books. So maybe this is something I shouldn't do because one of my favorite writers, as you know, is William Gaddis, and he kept on exhorting people to stop looking at the artist and just look at the goddamn work, you know? Uh, the artist is just the dregs that the work leaves behind. And I think something that's, you know, obviously essential to what we're talking about here, but uh, I I can't separate the work from the artist because the work emerged from a certain, I know. I, I, certain yeah. mind. Now, whether we can get a hold of this mind by other means, you know, biography, uh, oral accounts, you know, friends, whatever, we, I, is is a very, very tricky question. And then if we do get a hold of this mind in our own sort of version of what a, that hold may be, um, what effect does it have on the actual literature that that mind produced? You know, and so I, I, I right. don't know. I don't have an answer to, for you, Rob. I think the reason why, for instance, I'm attracted by people like Gaddis is because Though he came from a religious tradition, he shed that. But what remained, what remained, is that outrage at the injustice of of things. And I don't think you need essentialism. I don't think you need a god to say what is just and what is unjust. It's one of those things that we totally. see and plainly absolutely. if we are not clouded with some ideology. Um, if we and, are just being human, if we're just breathing together with whatever is in front of us and not putting our thoughts into it, then we are automatically do the right thing. We automatically do it. We don't need an well, external code of conduct of, of ethics. Well, it's, it's really, it's really interesting. You, you, you kind of mentioned that. And again, like, like Gaddis, I had a huge dose of Catholicism and I have, 
I, I moved away from it sounds kind of arrogant, but I, I no longer really believe, right? But it's I like still- It's like Rock. You're, you're in the vicinity. Yeah. You're never leaving right. the solar system, buddy. I'm sorry to say that to you. Yeah, That's no, Catholic. I- You're in the goddamn totally. solar system. You're totally. Because it, it's an entire cosmological view. But, but one of, to your point, there's literally a, a line in one of St. Paul's letters where essentially he's getting at the, the fact of like, well, you know, if you if you've never met the 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 God of Abraham or heard of him or even heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you know, like, you know, I guess you're you're kind of scot free because nobody can hold you to these moral codes if you've never been introduced to them. And in St. Paul essentially says exactly what you said. He said, you know, um, the I forget the exact quote, but he essentially says that every human heart the 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 law of what's right and wrong has been written on every human heart. So it it's it's an interesting way of saying also that like God will judge you, regardless of whether you went and heard the catechism or or you know were baptized. Like we all have this basic sense. Um, I, I know you don't believe it comes from God, and I'm not sure I do either. But um, well, we could say it comes from God, but it just it, it means yeah. very nowadays. It just really doesn't mean much nowadays. Um, exactly. Um, but yeah, so I, I right. I think in in the case of Gaddis or those Don DeLillo, these these people who have been shaped by Catholicism and aren't maybe specifically understood as quote unquote Catholic writers like you know Graham Greene or Evelyn Waugh, mm. a, as you alluded to, like it gives you this sense that there is some like there's there's two sides of the ledger, <laughs> justice and injustice, you know, mm. and like. Mm. Um, Right. I mean, the, the real positive side of the Catholic Church, which you can see in Pope Francis in, when he's at his best, is is like we advocate for the poorest, the most forgotten, the most marginal. And who else does that in this world? Who else does that? In the United States, despite all of the the talk of Christianity, we actually, if we're honest with ourselves, we despise the poor because we assume that they have a moral defect or else they wouldn't be poor, right? This is mm. the sort of Calvinist version of Christianity, which is quite opposed to Catholicism, but that's what shaped the country. And we believe that those who are poor or don't have money or health care, you know, they didn't work hard enough. And and, and this is... Well, it's, you know, it's, 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 yeah. That's it's, it. It's, those, those are categories invented for a specific purpose, and that's mostly to keep the middle class in line. <laughs> you know, don't you don't want to be that poor person. Keep on working. Give me those 40, 60 hours. I need okay. them. And, and you, you hear it in, um, you know, Mitch McConnell and the Republicans are saying, well, we, we don't want to give too much unemployment because it's a disincentive to right. work. And 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 so, again, it's like th- this idea that, like, um, you know, you don't have a right to food and shelter, right? You, you, you don't have that human right, even in the richest country. I, I don't want to pigeonhole on, on politics, but... Um, but I am, I am really interested in, in what you're getting at. Um, and, you know, I guess that's my critique of the contemporary novels that I run into. I, I just, I'm just not interested in, you know, you know, Bill, the person who works here and meets, you know, Sally, the person who works there and they have an adventure and, and, you know, I'm going to describe it, all the minutia of their life. And mm. I it just, I don't have time for that. I really don't have time for that. And I, and I wonder if it's an indication of either the philosophical or the religious poverty 
of of today's contemporary writers who who are are true they've almost gone beyond relativism i don't i don't even know where they mm, are they, like a post postmodernism type of deal they, they don't even have a point yeah. of view or a style cuz this is the thing that like you know you can pick up celine and and be as and within angry. a few within a few sentences you know you're reading celine totally the style yes. and you're reading it in translation yes you know and and um you know one of the critics said about celine that what was so novel about him was voice became the narrative like there there really is no like story his voice is all you need and you just you you hold you 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 grab it and you go for a ride mm, mm, and mm. it's 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 so surprising and funny at times he's also incredibly funny um well i i I, I would agree with you that there's always exceptions. Of course, there's always exceptions with contemporary writers. Uh, but but uh, it yeah, does. I mean, right? Like, it does seem H like we're, Hel what, I, what I'm missing, Rob. What I'm missing particularly is obviously I'd like to see somebody with a great style. Like for instance, Jim Gower's uh, recent novel is, I think, his only novel, uh, novel explosives. Um, really hit the spot for me. You know, it had depth, it had style, um, wonderful writing. Um, and it had something of that Gadissian sort of like, you know, moral center without a God, so to speak, um, yeah. which I'm, I, I, I do find that particularly with modern writers, there seem to be, there seems to be a dearth of that kind of outrage. Um, I was very happy to, uh, oh, I, I, I can't find this guy's name right now. Uh, Dimmock, Peter Dimmock. Um, he wrote a novel uh, in the 2000s, uh, George Anderson, uh, uh, and it's about it's about um, kind of the the Bush era torture. Remember that famous torture memo that one of his yeah, lawyers. Yeah, yeah, wrote? yeah, yeah, yeah. So the whole the whole novel is structured around this memo. I love that idea. Love it, oh, uh, Rob. I think as far as a political novel, without really being, even though it talks about specifically about politics, but it, it's not uh, an overtly political novel. It's actually a very um, well-written and very literary creation, which mm -hmm. is what attracted me to it. But then it had that moral outrage, which I just loved because nobody, well, there was a lot of chatter about, oh, it's torture. We're not a country that you know approves of torture, blah, blah, blah. But there was no definitive artistic expression of no, this is not right. And this was this was such a book for me. It came out to little fanfare, um, and I, I, it's not an easy book to read, uh, style-wise. But it's it really it, it just fed my soul at a time when I was starving because of of all the 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 moral poverty uh, going around around us. And not to jump too crazily ahead, but or ahead just sideways, really. Uh, there was a recent reassessment of of Mr. Carter, my favorite president, Jimmy Carter, uh, as kind of he's our last, the last really moral, good mm. president. Mm. Since Carter, we haven't had anybody who had that moral good center. Mm. Uh, and yeah, his is obviously uh, you know within the Christian framework, but he never pushed it on anyone. He didn't have that evangelical craziness uh, of mm. Pence or something like that, you know. Um, <laughs> And so, so just to tie back to politics, I guess, going back to Carter. So we, you know, it sounds like we, we're so far away from that kind of like, you know, eat your spinach. We have to eat your spinach, you know, but, but nobody wants to be moralized. Nobody wants to be lectured at, 
but I bring back Carter, man. I want someone to, somebody to give me a good, you know, good moral lecture from up, up, up on high, from some sort yeah. of a, from some sort of a, a position of authority, but uh, you know, to speak from from a good center, not from a rotten one. Just speak yeah. as, as you know, just just be good. That's all yeah. we're asking for. We need a president or a leader or, or a senator or whatever. Right. Like, you know, just need, need people with good centers, people who are not ideologically motivated, who are naturally uh, able to express their goodness. And I think I think all people are good in a way, unless they're, you know, damaged goods uh, psychologically, emotionally. And a lot of times it's just impossible to overcome. And you're just you you lash out, you lash out. And that's what we call evil. Um, well, yeah, uh, I think, you know, again, politicians, yes, moral good. Artists, uh, less less important. I, I, I completely agree with you, Rob. And again, so let's go back to what we're talking about. To to Celine and let's okay, so just I don't know, just let's take Gaddis and Celine, okay? Both great yeah. writers. Uh, I I could tend to you that Gaddis has some sort of a goodness in the center, even though I I'm a, I would like to think of myself as an anti-essentialist, but it's you know he's got he's got a, a lot of good things going on for him. Obviously, he also you know is a flawed human being, blah blah blah. But let's look at the artwork and the art, the novels, the recognitions. Jr., which I'm reading right now with a bunch of people online, and I'm having a blast again. Uh, it's pointing out injustices in the world, injustices in terms of relationships, all kinds of relationships, political, sociological, psychological, emotional, sexual, all these relationships, there's injustices going on, uh, you know, late capitalism has kinds of abuses, blah, 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 whatever kind of gloss you want to put on it. But he's coming from this, he's pulling you towards seeing the injustices from some sort of a good place. Again, I want to... I don't want to make it too, you know, good versus evil. It's not. It really isn't. So maybe go back to my anti-essentialism and say, relativize what I'm talking about, if you can. I'm not talking about exclusive set-in-stone categories. I'm talking about very fluid things that keep changing with the times. Now we have cancel culture, something that wasn't evil before seems to be evil now, and then it's maybe going away, and these waves of moral understanding um, you know, the, some people claim that we are getting better, uh, the better you know, angels of our nature, um, that it seems, if you look at history, that we are, we're taking some steps back, we're taking some steps forward, we're accepting people, then Texas decides not to accept people, fuck you, Texas. Um, um, you know, so there's these, this back and forth, but it's this fluid ocean of morality or ethical being. Uh, and and I love writers who pull me towards the goodness. Now, I also think Celine shows you the crap. He shows you the parts of human nature that are that do lash out because of damage. And let's let's not forget that I, did he write these two novels, Rob? Post war? Are these between the wars? Oh, oh, yeah. Um, so he wrote. Um... So the first novel was written in 1937, so it was before World War II, but, but to him, the war was World War I, right. right? He was a very young man when he was injured. He was like 17. And so he wrote um, his first novel in his late 30s, in, in the late 30s. So, um, and then uh, Death on the Installment Plan, I believe, came out in the middle of the war. Um, so, so if, if I mean... That, 
I mean, talk about scars. I mean, those are major scars that you would you would get as a you know as 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 a human being just living through two world wars like that. Absolutely. Uh, and so I I don't want to. It's not again. I'm not creating an excuse for his uh, the, the negative qualities of Celine. I think the negative qualities are exactly what gives him some of his this barbed wire strength because you sometimes need to be offended but it, it's got to be it's as a reader but it's got to come from a writer who doesn't do it who does it artistically you know who does it in an aesthetic way in such a way that is justified that is you know what i'm saying i i, I can't like for instance let's take another monster quote unquote of literature uh, the marquis de sade maybe Ooh. the monster of literature right um th this guy wrote uh, uh all kinds of horrible, horrible things uh, that that I think will condemn back then or will continue to condemn from for many years. However, if you put on your thinking glasses and you read with those glasses and you again maybe look at the history of this mind uh, against Gaddis's advice and you go back and look at the personality and what what he went through, and then you see how he's exposing really what was going on around him it's not just in his mind but the shit was actually happening you know mm. and people were just not writing about it because it was not proper it was no way anybody's going to write about this but he did and it took a lot of balls a lot of guts um and he is revered for all these qualities to this day that he stood up for his you know convictions um as 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 nutty as they were at at least at the time and I think even to this day, some of them are pretty nutty. Um, but uh, I think in a strange way, the Saad's moral center was r right where it should have been <laughs> yeah. for his times and for and for our sake. Well, it, it, it makes me think, Roman, that part of why these writers, the Marquis de Sade, Celine, again, he's speaking to me. Maybe I'm the only person in the Anglo-American world. Guys. Maybe it's just the French people. Maybe. But but I. <laughs> But but do we recognize truth, you know, in, in that, you know, again, I'm going to flip right back to life and literature. What's the connection? So so truth is something that hits us really right in the, the solar plexus because we're, we're constantly, you know, immersed in spin, you know, particularly nowadays with with all of media, everyone's spinning. I mean, Facebook is is your friends and family members spinning their life to you, right? right. They're showing you the very best versions of it. Like, right. you know, if you want to feel depressed and they've done statistics, go on Facebook and see that everyone in your circle of friends and family is having a great time except for you. You're the only schmuck right, who's right. still still in their pajamas at 2 p.m., <laughs> you know, watching uh, Lethal Weapon 3. Yes. Every, everybody else is in Acapulco or exercising or having smoothies. Or uh, writing the next novel. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. You're the only schnook. Yeah. Um, so, so I think almost that's what it is. And, and the other piece, which is related to our contemporary world is like, we, we, we want to censor the truth a little bit. There's this fear, you know, this is why, um, right wing, you know, nut jobs are not allowed to speak on college campuses. And I think they should be, I think their ideas, I think particularly well, on a, particularly on a college campus where presumably we were preparing the minds of young people to be flexible, critical, to 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 be able to suss out BS. So of all of of all an audience, 
Mm. Actually, Trump, if Trump went and tried to do his rally at, you know, whatever, you know, UC Berkeley or Harvard or you Dartmouth. You come to my, my, uh, my campus where I used to go to school. Uh, people would show up. People would yell and, and probably but there'll be a lot of pushback. And, but there but, should be. But they'll be like, able to process what he was saying. Well, that, that's right? what I'm saying. I mean, in, that's the audience that could listen and just, you know, shrug their shoulders and say, you know, this is this is politically, politically dangerous. It's lies. It, <laughs> right. It's actually the you know, it's the you know, the crowds hanging around him in North Carolina that you, you need to worry about, you know, what they're hearing. So so I, I don't like any of that. And I, it might make me a, you know, a grouchy middle-aged person, which um, I don't know, um, but I, I'll sort of own that, I guess. Um, well, it's, it's the times, but I mean, I, I would like to, I, I think we're all fighting with this, with this, uh, the exposure that we're getting on a daily basis of, of what seems to be a tidal wave of, 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 of shit um, and evil shit, you know? And it's it's happening no longer happening somewhere across the world in Soviet Russia or you know in 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 some yeah. some godforsaken part of the world. No, it's happening here, and so it's a little, it's still shocking after four years. It's still shocking. It's still uh, unbelievable if you just wake up and just have your first thought like what what wait a second what's going on? No, I can't believe it. Yes, it's true. You know, I mean, we all we've talked about maybe we've slid into some weird alternate reality. You know, I've had moments where I blame Philip K. Dick for everything, uh, for just imagining this kind of bullshit. I'm like, come on, really? You have to imagine it? Now we're fucking living in it. Thank you very, very much. Um, <laughs> so, you know, we have all these crazy moments, but uh, it's, I want to be able, this This is our life, Rob. We, we are living it. I don't want to lose lose whole sections of my life to negativity and and sort of sublet them to to the outside world and to the horrible political situation we're finding ourselves and that's not saying that i'm putting blinders on and i'm not voting and i'm not right doing i'm doing as much as i can but i also want to live and be joyful this is i think part of the, you know, we talked about this before part of the problem with um the environmental movement, uh, you know, we keep forgetting that, yeah, Trump is bad, blah, blah, blah. But really, climate emergency is numero uno problem. Uh, Trump is just, a, a, you know, a symptom and a cause. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much for being both. Um, uh, so we, we, we could and we are, unfortunately, I see it on, on Twitter. A lot of our friends are sometimes me, sometimes you. Uh, we lose it. We 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 l l sort of buy into the negativity and sort of externalize ourselves into this negative world that we're seeing around us, and we're living in it, and we and we, we and we hurt. You know, our 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 our, our sort of new neurons are exposed, and it 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 hurts because the world is the way it is. But uh, without retreating in some sort of a fantasy inner world, yeah. I want to be able to balance that shit that we're getting from the outside with some sort of radiance from the inside to keep joy in my life without being too new agey or wishy-washy and bullshitty about it. Not that way. I'm not, you know, yeah. ringing the bells. I'm not looking at the crystals. I want to generate this joy by perpetuating good things like reading William Gaddis online, per perpetuating good thoughts, uh, by spreading good literature around, by talking to you, by having people listen to us and reacting, by segueing to saying, Josh, 
Joshua Roths at the sublunary edition sent me some wonderful advanced reader copies uh, for things like a new uh, translation of Bruno Schultz. And speaking of anti-Semites, he was not an anti-Semite. He was a Semite who was killed by anti-Semites. Mm. Uh, walking home, uh, carrying a loaf of bread, 1942, killed by some Nazis. Um, mm. But there's a new translation by Frank Garrett. Rob, I'm hoping we're going to get Frank uh, on the podcast at some point to talk about his new translation of Bruno Schultz. Send, uh, send me a book, Frank. I, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we'll. Uh, I'll, I'll send you. Josh, uh, Josh sent me a bunch of uh, arcs, uh, including uh, fragments from a found notebook by a Romanian Jewish uh, playwright. Um, I'm excited about that one. Translated by Christina Tudor-Sideri, whom I follow. She's great. Uh, there's a new uh, Jacob Seafrig uh, translation of Pierre Sen Senhe Senges. I'm not sure how to pronounce his, his name. A wonderful contemporary French writer. Uh, you'd be interested in this, Rob. Um, uh, you, I know you're into French uh, literature. It's called Studies of Silhouettes, and it's a book on Kafka. So that sounds oh. very yummy, right? And and here we go with, with something interesting uh, for me as far as uh, the quotes here, because there's a quote from Bolaño, uh, uh, quote, he scares me. That's right. <laughs> it's Osvaldo Lamborghini. What a great name, right? 1940 wow. to 1985. It's a first English translation of this Argentinian writer. So I'm very excited. Uh, translated by Jessica Sequera. Um, there's another quote for you about this writer from uh, Cesar Aira, who's another wonderful writer. It's called, uh, quote, how can a person write so well? <laughs> yeah. So I'm excited about that. See, so th those are the good things that we're going to continue to try to spread. And let me, I'm not going to forget, Greg Gerke has a new edition of his book of essays, See What I See. Uh, we talked to Greg on the podcast nice. a while ago. He's our friend. Uh, this new edition, Rob, has a wonderful, absolutely great uh, introduction by Stephen Moore, uh, our favorite critic. Um, it's a wonderful introduction that you must read. I will send you this introduction because it talks about how Greg approaches literature from a very personal perspective that involves uh, the emotions as opposed to just the brain. And that's exactly what we've been talking about on this mm. podcast since the beginning. We called it feeling bookish, not thinking bookish, you know, because we are trying to sort of move away from the, the hard-headed sort of idea, sort of the, the logical stuff, and into more about the soft, gooey, emotional effect of literature, which I think is, is um, understudied, I would, because it's hard. It's hard to study emotions. Uh, it's relatively new. You know, William James, James kind of started it, and we're still learning how to, how to go about it, uh, dealing with our emotions without... Um, burying them and sort of some weird ideas. So, so I'm excited. Yeah, I'm excited. I want to bring this joy and I want to fight against this because, you know, Rob, we're going to be in this shit for a while because uh, according to the papers, the legal teams are already battling. So whatever happens in a, in a week or two, the legal battles are going to keep going. And I'm really hoping and, you know, I don't particularly believe in God most times, but I'm praying for no, no uh, violence and no... Yeah. Uh, other kinds of battles because this country certainly yeah. needs to move beyond things and start just healing and uniting and, and working towards resolving all of our issues. They're all of our issues. They're not somebody's issues. They're mm. our, our issues. <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's a wonderful um, series of thoughts and it, it, you know, gets to 
to what I'm thinking about is is right. I think um, the ability to to acknowledge what's going on, to not fall into cynicism and despair, but at the same time to really be weary of like, and I, you know, people these days naturally you you commiserate with them, and then someone in the conversation typically will say something along the lines of. Well, you know, but there's some good that will come from this. And I, I, my, my Catholic sense wants to agree because, I mean, this is the very core of the Catholic teaching, which is something horrible, right? The innocent execution of a young Palestinian man, <laughs> something good came from that, i.e. the salvation of humanity, right? If you believe Christian theology. But I, I have to say, I'm, I'm less inclined to think that that's true, that the destruction of you know, political systems and, you know, deaths of hundreds of thousands of people and the destruction of the, the climate. I, I just don't know if good things come from that. I think yeah, no, that's, being, that's, 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 I think, that's, that's, that's purposeful thing. I mean, it's, that's teleological yeah. thinking. That's thinking that, so, that something has an effect on the future on purpose, you know? That's, yeah. And, and so, so I've come to the conclusion and, and I also, you know, and this, this may sound cynical, but this is very factual and rational based on my own personal experience. I mean, I, I don't think family is everything. Family has, you know, frankly, not proved to be everything for me. I, I've found in most cases you can't rely on them. Again, my own personal experience. And so I, I've almost come to a kind of Proustian point of view that that art is the one thing that you can count on, that, that, that you know, Celine's books are an endless exploration of the complexities of life and humanity. Mm. The string quartets of Shostakovich even something like um, I've been really, really getting great um, uh, comfort in a way and inspiration from um, this this hip hop artist, Mac Miller, who actually died in 2018 from a, an overdose. And he his his records, man, are are incredible. He was a true artist. Um, yeah, you sent me some of the stuff. It's it's quite good. I mean, and I, it's funny because I've I've been turning to uh, Beethoven's uh, late quartets uh, again and again oh, because they're they, endless. Yeah, kind of, they've been as you know they've been the soundtrack of my life since a very early age. Yeah. Um, and now you know what's been happening, Rob. I've been waking up in the middle of the night with with uh, with certain movements just playing in my head over and over again, and I. As opposed to being all upset that I'm awake Ooh. and I can't go back to sleep, I just lie there and I enjoy the music playing in my head because I know these these pieces so well at this point. They yeah. just they just give me so much strength uh, and hope, and they're just it's just music. There's no words. There's no concepts. And, there's no and, nothing. It's just. And you you can you can say vibrations. Roman and, and and I'm thinking out loud here and maybe this is you know again like the very best of humanity is represented in these these products mm. it, where this isn't the case in our political systems it's not the case often in our families the best of humanity is not represented in our families or else we wouldn't have you know the widespread sexual abuse within families i mean the best of humanity is not always represented in our churches you know or else we wouldn't have you know the scandals we're aware of so i i i sometimes think that um and I want to explore more of this with Celine. That that he he left the very best of himself in those books, and that um, what you interacted with when you you know chatted with him or you 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 read his political stuff was you were getting the you know the um, the not the embers but you were getting the 
the detritus of of him. You were getting the leftovers. You were getting the um, you know, the tired coffee grounds right. of, of of his cup. You know, um, right. So I don't know. Uh, that that's sort of where my head is. Um, mm. And uh, well, you like know, I, said, I mean. The- you're, see, that's to go back just to I mean, we probably should wrap up, but just to go back to that whole essentialism and relativism. Yeah, I, I, I too, am I, I, you know, obviously I'm a, I, I worship art. It's kind of my 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 divinity. Um, but at the same time, it's produced by by humans. But it's got this, you know, so it's 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 relativized. Yet at the same time, it's got something essential to it. And, uh, you know, one of my favorite scenes in all of cinema is Orson Welles's F for Fake. He talks about the Chart cathedrals. You know, we keep going back to the French, man. What's this? <laughs> so Vive la France. Yeah, right. Vive la France, exactly. So he contemplates, you know, this overwhelming beauty of this cathedral. Uh, it's a very melancholy kind of scene. It's quiet. It's in the background. You can see the, the cathedral. Uh, and Welles talks about it as, you know, it's the premier work of man, uh, perhaps mm-hmm. in the whole of Western world, you know. Yeah. And yet... It doesn't have a signature. We don't know who built it, you know. Uh, so great, these great works of art will continue. Yeah, I think will continue where everything, all the uh, things go crazy, things collapse. Uh, James Joyce famously said about Ulysses, and actually, I think it's really more to the point of Finnegan's Wake, uh, which I, I believe um, other people pointed out. Is that if if all the, you know if the world went kaboom right now if civilization just collapsed which it's creaking and it's threatening to do right because we're all freaking yeah. out um, uh, you could reconstruct uh, it in its entirety uh, and this is not um, hyperbole this is not really really I'm really you know that's that's what it really means in its entirety from Finnegan's Wake from literature from art yeah. Um, I know it's a grandiose I, statement. No, but I, I, I let's let's I, end I, let's end this this crazy episode on a grandiose. Yeah, statement. I, I I'll just say one other thing. I, I I can't I can't help myself because that idea is so exciting. But um, specifically with the um, the Gothic cathedrals and particularly you know the examples in France, Chartres, and of course you know Notre Dame, um, a very obscure Catholic thinker named Hilaire Belloc, oh, yeah. who. Um, uh, probably nobody's ever heard of, and and there's oh no there's no probably, no people have heard of him. You know, yeah, uh, people have, in yeah. academia have heard of him. Sure, sure. Um, so he also a Frenchman who, um, uh, or no, I should say, I think he was an Englishman with a French ancestry. But he 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 argues, you know, strongly that um, those cathedrals were the apex of Western civilization. Mm. That 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 was the, you know, that everything kind of since is is you know, we're, we're in the, the downside of, of the mountain. And it's an interesting argument. You could, you could, you know, have five podcasts, whether that's, well, there's various people have placed the end of civilization in various points. And right. can I throw my, my, yeah. Uh, yeah. my example in yeah. into the ring, uh, 19, late seventies. <laughs> okay. Late seventies. So it I just happened. All right. I was born in 1970. So that whole decade, I love it. Uh, yeah. Jimmy Carter, my favorite president, uh, Rosalind Carter kissed me, 1978. So let's pick 1978 when I was kissed by the first lady uh, on the cheek. Uh, right. As the be- as the end of the that's it. That was the apex of Western civilization, or at least of Roman civilization, pun intended. 
And, um, and, and listeners, he has a photo of that. And, and if we, if we tweet him, he will, he will tweet it on the podcast. He has a photo of that moment. Yes. Uh, well, I think we came to the end of the civilization, man. Civilization we did. So, um, so that's the deal. And, and if anybody writes that Celine essay before I do, I'm going to send my lawyers after you. I, I believe in art and I believe in lawyers. So I'm a... <laughs> So, so I'm a, I'm a true, a true yeah. American in in in, ha in half a sense. All right, Hunter S. Thompson, no problem. Exactly. Talk to your lawyer. Talk to your lawyer. Um, well, I think that's it. And um, you know, we we do have feelers out to people who uh, will have some good guests. Yeah, a little um, preview. Can give a little preview, Rob. Maybe just I know that. Well, just well, I, I'd have to. I'd have to kick it to you. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Janice, Janice Grill is going to be back. Uh, we're going to have a, a follow-up Musil episode. We'll talk about her her new book, uh, Theater Symptoms, uh, about uh, Musil's uh, theater uh, reviewing, uh, uh, critical work, and also some of his plays. And Rob, uh, again, I will. Uh, I'm not sure if you already have the text, but uh, Janice's introduction is masterful yet again. I think Janice needs to write a book. Or something because she is um, such a passionate um, mind that involves both the sort of the academic side of things and also the artistic and the sort of amateur. And I, I mean that in the best of senses, uh, meaning sort of, you know in terms of love of things uh, approach. And it comes through so well. She's such a good writer. I'm really excited to have her back. Uh, we're also super excited to announce to any Discordians out there that. Daisy Aris Campbell is going to be on our podcast uh, in a few months. Uh, I'm, I am over the moon. How about that one? Daisy Aris Campbell is the daughter of Ken Campbell, the maverick British uh, theater director. Um, she staged plays. She is one of the leading uh, counterculture figures in England. She is a, a ball of fun. We're going to have lots of fun with her. Uh, talk about Finnegan's Wake. We'll talk about uh, Illuminatus trilogy nice. by Robert Anton Wilson. We'll be have lots of fun. So, just a preview. Also, uh, as I mentioned, Frank Garrett will join us at some point. I would love to talk about Bruno Schultz and explore his world a little bit more. I don't know if you had a chance, Rob, to read his book, uh, Streets of Crocodiles. Mm. On Street no, of Crocodiles. Nope. It's a slim volume. I think mm. you should read it at some point. It's uh, uh, he, you know, uh, should be better known. He's kind of a Kafka figure from around the same time. I don't want to start baloney, you know, putting baloney out there saying Kafka figure, but you know, very exciting in any case. So we have mm. a bunch of really great figure, you know, a great guests coming up. Uh, so stay tuned. I think I'll end it right there. <laughs> very nice. So thank you everybody. And thank you Heston uh, for your sound engineering work. And we will see everyone again. And just remind folks that you can follow us on Twitter at feel bookish and if you're also able to leave a review on apple podcasts that's a great help to us okay thank you and thank you guys bye now bye